stay standing for a moment as we read Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. For they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. So lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come before you mindful that the earth is yours, everything in it. God, that we enter into this sanctuary, this holy place, with an opportunity to encounter and to experience the King of glory. And we confess that too often our vision is clouded by the distractions and the things of this world. God, that our minds race, our thoughts betray us. And so in this moment, God, I pray that your spirit would lead us, that you would usher us into this sacred moment, this sacred space in your holy word in such a way that sharpens us, refines us, and reminds us of who you are. God, we thank you for an opportunity to come and fall on bended knee, to stand in joyful praise to our God and our King. May you be honored, may you be glorified and lifted high in this time. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen and amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Man, I just love coming together and worshiping with you all uh, every Sunday. Special thanks for the team uh, that helps lead us in that joyful praise. Um, you know, every Sunday has a, a similar routine and rhythm for me as we, as we get ready for worship. You know, I don't know about you. I'm sure you have a Sunday morning routine as well, but I'll I wake up early, uh, get uh, some time just to be by myself, read through the notes to kind of get ready for the sermon and the message. Then if time allows, I'll get back in the house, try to make some breakfast, sharing breakfast with the family, then get ready, then, then drive here to church. We come in here for a pre-service meeting where we work through all the different details of the, of the service and kind of work out any final questions, logistics, and, and all of that just as a, as a moment of preparation and readiness for the time that we get to worship together. And I'm sure you do something similar in the terms of just getting ready for church on Sunday, um, trying to increase the intentionality with that. My wife gave me a book uh, not too long ago, I think over Christmas actually, that has some devotionals that help kind of focus our hearts and our time as we get ready for worship. And, and the reality is, is that that process of preparation for Sunday morning is not confined to Sunday, right? Uh, we, we really spend every day in some form of our capacity getting ready for something, right? It's, it's a normal part of our daily experience. And so uh, it's really interesting to think about how we uh, really kind of factor, different things we factor into our decision-making process when we are getting ready for something. And, and there are probably three different factors that I would highlight to you, because if you think about the progression into adulthood, uh, it takes some time before you really understand what it means to get ready. Like if you're thinking about infants and newborns and toddlers, they're not getting themselves ready, right? Somebody else is getting them ready, 
right? You're getting that child ready. They're not getting themselves ready. And so mom and dad are the ones picking out the clothes. They're the ones searching for the different onesies or the different stuff that they need for bedtime. They get them ready for dinner time. They're the ones that are going to swaddle them up and put them in the crib at night. Like that's somebody else getting you ready. And at some point, that child, that infant matures out of that stage to where they get a little bit more of self-sufficiency. But that self-sufficiency is really more functional than it is anything else, right? They're still just kind of doing what mom and dad say. This is the stage of childhood where mom and dad can say, hey, go get yourself ready. And they, they will, but for them, what that means is I'm going to grab the first shirt out of the drawer, the first pair of pants, the first pair of shoes, probably put it on backwards and shoes on the wrong feet, and I'm ready, right? And then mom and dad kind of have to work through some of those kinks, let's fix the buttons or whatever. So they can kind of do it, but there's really nothing in their mind that is influencing how they get ready. That begins to to develop really kind of later in elementary school and early junior high, where all of a sudden you have some level of autonomy that influences how you ready yourself for the day. And and at that age in particular, that's when you start to use that readiness as a way to demonstrate certain uh, interest or style or preferences. You start paying attention to brands, certain trends. Uh, You get new things introduced to how you can get ready in your life. Girls get introduced to makeup. Guys get introduced to cologne, which is a really interesting introduction in junior high. Uh, because like for the junior high boy that gets cologne, we, we think it is a supplement for regular hygiene. And, and so like I remember being in junior high, going to athletics and in the middle of the day, coming out like all sweaty from basketball or a workout, going to the locker room, and we would all just douse ourselves in cologne, like seven or eight sprays. And we're like, we're good. And not realize that what we had really created was like this mixture of cologne and body odor, which nobody really enjoys. And so it takes some time before you kind of mature out of that. But all of that is you choose your favorite cologne, you choose your favorite clothes. And so part of what influences how we get ready is our style, right? Our expression of who we are. That's one factor. Another factor, though, in terms of how we get ready for things is not really anything to do with our style or our personal choices, but the occasion, the event, right? It depends on what it is that you're getting ready for. If you're about to go camping, that takes a different form of readiness than if you're about to go skiing and the equipment that you need to go skiing. And so all the different activities, all the different events, all the different factors that can also influence how it is that you would approach getting ready. So you've got personal preference, you've got the occasion, the circumstance. But the one I really want you to reflect on for a little bit this morning, this third factor that influences how you get ready for something is your relationships, right? The people or person that you're going to see on that particular day or in that particular moment. And what I've, what I've kind of realized as I was reflecting on it this week is that interestingly enough, somewhat ironically, the less you know someone, right, the, the less familiarity you have with somebody, a lot of times the more importance you put on getting ready, right? And, and then is it's as you get more and more comfortable with people, more and more familiar, that you actually kind of de-emphasize the importance of getting ready, and you can just kind of be more yourself. And we see this in a variety of different relationships, but it's probably easiest to see in the context of a romantic relationship, right? Because on that first date, right, that very first date, you are dressing to impress all the effort to get ready for that date, right? You're, you're going to make sure you pick all the outfits out. You're going to make sure your hair is cut. You're going to get the right amount of cologne, right? It's the spray and walkthrough technique that you've matured into at this point. Like you're going to go all out to make sure that that first date goes well and that you can impress them so that it can lead to a second date, right? And so you put a lot of importance on getting ready. And if it does lead to a second date, the second date might then lead to a relationship. 
The relationship might then lead to an engagement. An engagement might then lead to marriage and then marriage to a life together. And when you start living in a life together, you begin to really de-emphasize the importance of getting ready because now this person's with you all the time. And, and there's such a familiarity that on a Saturday when it's a day off, it's like, yeah, I may take three hours before I change out of my pajamas and comb my hair today, right? Like I may not shower today and it's okay because that person accepts you for who you are. There's a familiarity with it and you no longer have to worry too much about the readiness that is involved for it. So it's interesting that it kind of diminishes in the importance. But as you live this life together with this person, you'll have these moments, right? You'll have these, these occasions like an anniversary or a date night or something that's important. And all of a sudden, you'll, you'll kind of reignite that emphasis on getting ready, right? And you'll give it all the effort and you kind of surprise one another. Wow, you look really great tonight. And, and you kind of go back through that effort. But now the emphasis in, in the energy that you're putting and getting ready for those moments are not because you're trying to impress that person. It's because now you're trying to show them how important they are and the time that you get to spend with them. And so there's this beautiful mixture that the familiarity says, okay, I don't have to impress you anymore. We, we can accept each other just who we are, but we're going to have these moments in our life where we infuse this getting ready, these occasions, so that I can demonstrate to you how important this relationship is. And, and I think that very much applies to our relationship with the Lord, right? For many of us, when we don't really know God, when we don't really have a relationship with him, we can fall under this idea that we have to ready ourselves for him to try to impress him, right? To, to try to show him that, that we're good, that he can accept us, that he can embrace us for who we are, and that we're fearful that if we don't have ourselves put together, if we don't have our act all together, that he's not going to. And so we put all this pressure and this emphasis to ready and prove ourselves to him, to impress him. Or we're so fearful that he won't accept us, that we just disregard the relationship as a whole. But then we have this opportunity to develop this intimacy with God, this relationship with God, and we discover he's going to accept us just for who we are. And we can create that familiarity that is so meaningful, is so rich, and so deep, and so powerful. But what it needs to be infused with is a regular time where you begin to say, I need to put forth the effort to show God how important he is to me, that this is the most important relationship. Not that I need to impress him, but to demonstrate the importance of the relationship that we share. And so all of that to, to ask this opening question today, what do you do to ready yourself for the Lord? Like how do you prepare your heart for prayer? How do you ready your soul for worship. Granted, there is a familiarity that we can have with God that allows us just to come as we are, freely and safely. But there's also value in stopping and recognizing that there is the most important relationship in our life, and it merits and warrants the thoughtfulness to say, how do I prepare myself to be with you? Not because I'm trying to impress you, but because you are so important to me. And that's the question we're going to seek to ask today. How do we ready ourselves for the Lord? And we're doing this under kind of the overarching theme of this new sermon series that we started last week, Finding Your Safest Relationship. This is going to be a journey through the Psalms. 
And, and the idea is that by looking at these different genre of psalms, each Sunday we're going to look at a different psalm that has a different sort of genre or category. And through the course of this series, we're going to paint a holistic picture of all the different emotions and sentiments and circumstances that the psalmist brings before the Lord to show us that we can bring anything to God. You can bring your joys, your pains, your sorrows, your hurts, your opportunities, your praise, all of it to Him. Every other relationship in your life has a certain risk to it, right? You don't always know how the people in your life are going to react when you have certain worries or fears or when you are uh, going through grief or when you're coming through with opportunities and praise, right? There's always a risk with those relationships. But what we see consistently in Scripture and what we hope to prove throughout the course of the series is that you can bring anything to the Lord. And, and by walking through the series, I hope that it informs and strengthens your prayer life. I hope it changes and influences your understanding of how, how to worship the Lord. And so one of the first things that we're going to look at today, the first genre of psalm that we're looking at today is Psalm 24 that we've already read, and that is an entrance liturgy. An entrance liturgy is not a very common genre in the psalms at all, Psalm 24 being one of the most notable ones, Psalm 15 as well, and then a few other psalms have elements of it. But an entrance liturgy is exactly what it sounds like. This is, this is the sort of psalm that people would sing as they entered into the temple for worship, or they came upon the mountain for worship. This is how they prepared themselves for worship. And so my hope is that by looking at Psalm 24, we can see some of these ancient practices that the people of Israel employed and then use them and apply them to our lives to answer this question, how do we ready ourselves for the Lord? Okay, so Psalm 24, we just read it, and you really can kind of break it down into three different sections. And those sections kind of add a level of complexity to understanding the psalm. Uh, section one would be verses one and two, and it has a distinct theme about creation. Uh, section two would be verses three through six that has a different sort of focus and feel to it and before it ends with section three, verses seven through 10. And so a lot of the questions that scholars have as they've studied this is, are these three different segments of Psalms that used to exist independently and just over time they've been merged together? Or was it always written uh, kind of with this, this holistic point in mind? And, and it's really hard to say definitively one way or another how it came together. But what we do know is that over time, it did eventually become in, in form into one Psalm that was used uh, by the Judaic people and was considered an entrance liturgy. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at these three sections. And, and what I think we're going to be able to see that helps answer this question of how do we ready ourselves for the Lord is that there are two kind of themes that will emerge or two different ideas. One is, what are our expectations of God? And what I mean by that is, who is He? Do we really have a, an appropriate view of who He is and who He is in our life? And, and that that sort of point of emphasis will be found in sections one and three, kind of bookends the Psalms, where we get to answer this question of who is he and what are our expectations of him. Sandwiched in between that in section two is this moment where we get a clearer picture of what are God's expectations of us, right? And, and all of it speaks to how we ready ourselves, making sure we have an appropriate view of God, but then also understanding how we should approach him and what we need to do uh, to, to meet the expectations that he has of us will create this holistic picture. Okay, so we're gonna look at these three sections and walk through it together. Let's revisit verse one and two, starting really with just verse one, where the psalmist begins, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. 
All right, it was believed that this psalm was constantly and regularly referred to after the Sabbath, right? And it kind of kicks off this theme of creation again. After God rested and the people rested, we kind of revisit his creative work. And, and this brings forward this idea of God's sovereignty in creation. And verse 1 is very clear with how it says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And so just to kind of land the plane for us this morning, what we need to be reminded of when we look at verse 1 is that there is not a corner of this globe that, ex that it, uh, is exempt from or escapes the reign and the rule and the sovereignty of God. Now, one part of it. So when we think about the world in its entirety— and all that comprises it, everything belongs to the Lord. Ukraine belongs to the Lord. Russia belongs to the Lord. Israel, Palestine, it all belongs to the Lord. He has not lost control over any of it. Now, because of the sin and the curse that we see through Genesis, the earth is going to be filled with corruption and brokenness and all these things. But may we never look and interpret the brokenness and the chaos of the world through such a lens that makes us think any of it has escaped his notice or that any of it is beyond his control or that any of it has surprised him. All of it belongs to him. And that includes the people who live within it. That includes you. <laughs> Every part of your life belongs to the Lord. And yet, when we're honest about our relationships, one of the reasons we don't always prepare appropriately is because we want to bring part of our life to the Lord, but maybe not all of our life to the Lord. Right? So we'll say, all right, God, I'll give you my marriage. I'll give you uh, my children, I'll give you my retirement, I'll, I'll give you my health, but I don't, I don't know if I can really safely bring you my failures, my mistakes. I don't know if I can give you my past. I don't know if I can give you my dreams, my ambitions. And, and so we withhold things from the Lord. And it's, it's really silly when you think about it because all of it belongs to him, every corner of the globe, every corner of your life. And when we begin to have this mis- uh, kind of guided view and understanding that maybe we actually have things that we bring to the Lord for him to help us with or to bless us with, we've lost sight of what reality is, right? We're not, we're not acquiring for ourselves, achieving for ourselves, accumulating for ourselves, and then bringing it to the Lord and asking for help. It's all his, right? And, and it, and it kind of is crazy if we don't have the right mindset. It reminds me a lot of times of the things that I see at home with my kids. Um, my kids will love to use the word mine, um, and, and so you hear that pretty regularly at home. They have this, this idea that a lot of this stuff that has been accumulated in this house belongs to them. And so you will hear them argue with each other. Hey, no, that's mine. No, hey, actually, that one's mine. I was about to play with it. No, it's mine. And, and you hear this on a regular basis. On most days, it's moderately annoying. Um, but there are times where that little exchange with my kids turns into an argument between them. And they start really kind of going at who has what. And that's when I step into the equation to remind them none of it is theirs, all of it is daddy's, right? And so you can just happily give that back to me and no one gets it, right? And, and you just kind of remind them that everything they have has been entrusted to them. Their room, their clothes, their toys, all of it has been entrusted to them for their benefit, for what I hope is their flourishing, for their maturation, but it's been entrusted to them. It's not theirs. And that's how it is with us and the Lord. All of it belongs to him. 
How should that influence your understanding of prayer, your understanding of worship, and who you expect God to be and how you see him? Now, here's what's cool about it. Verse 2 says that the verification or the validation for this authority is that he founded it, meaning the earth and the world, on the seas, and he established it on the waters. Now, God did a lot of things in creation, didn't he? Uh, he, he created uh, the land, the moon, the stars, the trees, the, the sun. The, uh, he, he created creatures, right? So many different things. But the psalmist here has chosen to reference the waters, right? The rivers and the seas. And, and in Hebrew, it's, it's interesting. Uh, the word for seas is yam. Uh, the word for rivers here is nahar. And those two terms in Canaanite mythology, not Israelite, but Canaanite mythology, uh, were terms that often demonstrated chaos. Right? And so now we don't know the extent to which the Israelites would have been familiar with Canaanite mythology, but it obviously probably would have been something there was some degree of familiarity with. But even without a high level of familiarity there, you can also see back in creation in Genesis 1 that in the beginning God hovered over, over the waters. Right? And, and so the psalmist here is, is not personifying these terms by any, any stretch. He's not trying to, to tap into some form of mythology but it's interesting that by choosing the waters, both from a contextual understanding of what rivers and waters represented, seas and rivers represented, but also a biblical call back to Genesis 1, this is a very direct reminder that our God is the God who brings order out of chaos. So when I acknowledge that everything is his, I can also do so knowing that he's the God that brings order out of chaos. And so the question for you this morning, if you're going to really begin to prepare your heart for prayer, for worship, for this relationship, is to ask yourself, is there any part of my life that I'm withholding from God? And I need to bring it to him today. Is there any part of my life that feels chaotic? Anything that feels like it's spiraling? Anything that I feel like I'm losing my grip on? I can come before the Lord knowing that he's the God that brings order out of chaos. It's a great reminder of who our God is. Now, the second section will speak to who we need to be in his presence. Verse 3, uh, it, really these next two sections are more liturgical. And what I mean by that is there's a call and response sort of flow to it. Okay, and so to picture how this really worked, imagine the assembly of the Israelites coming to the base of Mount Sinai. All right, and they're gathering there, and here's what they cry out, verse 3. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? And as they offer up that question, probably a priest or some representative turns and answers them with verse 4. Will the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god, continues with the explanation, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. And so then the people respond with verse 6, and they say, Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. And so they've gathered to the base of the mountain, and this call and response is the manner in which we are reminded of how we should ready ourselves, prepare ourselves to enter into this relationship. What are God's expectations of us? Very specifically, who can ascend? How, how do we prepare ourselves? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. This is to say that there should be a certain integrity both in action and in thoughts, right? Clean hands is how you're living your life. It's your actual deeds. It's, it's your actual conduct. Pure heart is your thoughts. 
right? It's, it's the sincerity with which you live your life. And so uh, the answer from the priest to the people is you need to have clean hands and a pure heart. Now, we all can recognize, and they would have recognized, that no one can claim some sort of moral excellence and perfection. And so what this really is a call to is to confession and repentance, right? To, to come before the Lord is a reminder that we need to confess and repent, both in word and in deed, in thought and in action, in order to fully engage in the relationship that he has cultivated and wants to cultivate for us. The value of confession and repentance. Now, coming right alongside this is not just clean hands and pure heart, uh, but to not have any idols, right? God says, you're going to have no other gods before me. And so if we're going to enter into this time of worship, we're going to enter into a time of prayer, we need to do some soul searching and try to determine, are there any idols in my life, right? And, and they're sneaky in our world, right? They're not always these figures of stone and, and, and uh, different temples and different religions. Sometimes it's just a way of thinking, right? And so part of it is that if you begin to do some self-assessment, can you unearth and acknowledge that there are certain voices in your life that you would give more authority to than the Lord's, right? Are there certain things in your life that you're going to follow more than you're going to follow the word of the Lord, Right? If, if you are going to come to the Lord in prayer and in worship, but then ultimately leave that time and still just do what the world tells you to do or what your flesh tells you to do right? or, or what something else tells you to do, then, then you are following the way of idolatry. Right? And so we need to set that aside. We need to kind of do some soul searching and figure out, is there anything within me that is overpowering and overshadowing the voice of the one who created all things? Right, we've got to cast down these idols. Don't put our trust in an idol. We'll swear by a false god. A simple explanation of this is if you come forward saying you're going to do something with no intention of following through, right? Like let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. If you're going to come before the Lord, do so sincerely, not with a false sense of I'm going to try to fool God and say one thing, but do another, right? And so you, you see a pretty clear um, expectation that's put before us as we approach the Lord. Now, what the priest is going to tell the assembly is that there's a benefit in you working through these steps of confession, repentance, uh, removing idols from your life, and, and seeking the Lord in sincerity. That if you do this, you will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, your Savior. Vindication can also mean righteousness, right? That, that this is what's really cool, is that essentially what the, the priest here is saying or what he's encouraging the people is that the very practice of preparation is beneficial, right? It's gonna yield certain fruit. The, the way I think about it is, you know how sometimes we have relationships that just drain us, right? You don't have to say amen. Um, but you know what I mean? Like there are just certain people in your life that feel toxic, right? They bring bad things out of us. They make us anxious, they make us worried, they make us upset, and all these different things. And just being around them is, is difficult or draining. But the other side is that there are some relationships that we have in our life that have the opposite effect that just fill you, right? Just by being with them, you leave feeling encouraged, you leave feeling challenged, inspired, right? And all these different things. That's what is, is being said here. The very act of preparing yourself to be before the Lord, the process and the discipline, the rhythm of confession, repentance, 
um, putting aside idols and, and seeking God sincerely is going to bring an inherent blessing and add righteousness to your life. It's going to be like just being around somebody that's going to naturally produce fruit within you. And, and so you have this admonition, you have this encouragement, and then the people respond. Such is the generation that seeks the Lord, right? Who seeks God, who seeks his face, the God of Jacob. And so their response is not saying that they've achieved some sort of moral integrity, right? What they're saying is, is this is what we want, right? This is what we're going to pursue. This earnest seeking means that this idea of prayer, of worship, this relationship is integral to their life. It is going to be what creates the focus and the direction for their life. And so they are seeking God more than anything else are you. Like, what are you searching for in your life? What is giving your life direction and focus? What is the most integral part of your day? Is it the time that you are preparing yourself and then the actual time you are spending with the Lord, preparing yourself for that relationship, demonstrating that His is the most important in your life? Or if you're honest, when you think about how you spend most days, is your searching and your seeking driven and your focus and your mission coming from something else? And what God wants is a people who earnestly seek him. And that's part of how we prepare for our relationship with him. Which leads to the third section. This is uh, a really interesting section and in some ways one of my favorites. It comes back to, so what do we now again expect of God? How do we rightly see him? This also is a liturgical kind of call and response sort of reading. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of unpack it for you, paint the picture for you. But first, let's understand this structure, because it can be kind of confusing when you just read it uh, line after line. But it's a similar call and response. So we can imagine a cluster of people that are here, arrived at the temple gates, maybe the base of the mountain, depending on what time period we are in Israel's history. But imagine the temple, and they're, they're here at the doors, they're at the gates, and they, they call out and they say, lift up your heads, you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And there's a response from the gatekeeper, right? Whoever it is that's there that they're speaking to, who's going to ask them, who is this king of glory? And the people respond, right? They lift up their voices and say, it's the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And they repeat the question. They repeat the request. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And the gatekeeper responds one final time, who is this king of glory? And the psalm ends with a declaration from the people, the Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. And you see this rhythm, this call and response. And so what's happening here? Right? It's really interesting. And if you really kind of begin to think critically about it, what is it to say that the people are bringing the king of glory to the gates? Right? And what's taking place here? Well, one of the key themes that you see is obviously that now it's no longer just God as creator, as we saw in the first section, but now it's, it's God kind of victorious in battle. You get some military language. The Lord is mighty. He is mighty in battle. <clears throat> and so the themes for this third section are the Lord as, as kind of a warrior, one who is mighty in battle. But a lot of people believe that Psalm 24, this section, is speaking to the Ark of the Covenant, right? In the entrance 
of the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. And, and so in order for us to really, I think, appreciate it, I, I want us to take some time to understand not our story, not, not our perception, but the story of Israel, right? And why the entrance of the ark and, and their understanding of God being victorious in battle would have been so meaningful for them and how that would have become such a, a common expression of their worship, okay? And so we're gonna have some story time for a little bit and we're just gonna go back a little bit through Israel's story to try to bring this part of Psalm 24 to life, hitting on these two themes of the Lord mighty in battle and the importance of the Ark of the Covenant, okay? And then we'll close our time with, with bringing it into some application for us today. And so if you think back to maybe the first time that the Lord really demonstrated himself as, as one mighty in battle on behalf of the Israelites, it would take you to the Exodus, right? He, he brings God's people, he brings the Israelites up out of Egypt uh, through all these miraculous signs, all these incredible wonders. And as they are fleeing, all of a sudden Pharaoh changes his mind and decides he's going to pursue the Israelites and slaughter them. And so they are fearful, running for their lives, and now they're stuck because they come here up against the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his armies are coming down upon them. And this is the moment of the desperation that the Israelites had that begins to point to Moses, reaffirming and assuring them, don't worry, he's going to be strong in battle. Let's listen to this in uh, Exodus chapter 14, verse 10. It says, as Pharaoh, approached the Israelite, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us up out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And listen, appropriately so, you and I take this idea of the Lord being strong in battle to, to fighting our battles, right, whatever they may be, kind of metaphorically. Don't lose sight of the fact that he fought an actual battle. Like the sea began to part. And the Israelites moved on dry ground to safety. And as Pharaoh and his armies pursued them, the waters receded and destroyed all of Israelites' enemies. What a remarkable demonstration of who God is. And so Moses erupts with praise. And when he sings the song in Exodus 15 that I'm about to read to you, I want you to hear how he describes the Lord with now this this shift in understanding his power that can be used in battle. But towards the end of this section, notice that Moses is alluding to the reason for it, what God is hoping to achieve by being victorious in battle. Let me read it to you, okay? This is Exodus 15, verses 1 through 18. It says, Then, the Mo then Moses said, and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. 
Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger, and it consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. And the enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. Listen to this. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as stone until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you bought pass by. Here it is again. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, Lord, you made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. So you see the detailed description with which Moses describes the Lord being victorious in battle. And it is unmistakable, his strength and his might but that the purpose for this victory is to lead people with this unfailing love into this holy dwelling, into this sanctuary, this sacred place where they get to meet and be present with God. And that kind of becomes the journey. And so through the time of Moses being on Mount Sinai, what does God say? He says, build a tabernacle. If you turn to like Exodus 25, you don't have to. I'm just paraphrasing at this point. He says, build a tabernacle. This is going to be where I dwell. And then what does he tell them to do? He tells them to build an ark. And he gives them detailed descriptions of the ark that's going to be in this tabernacle. And in Exodus 25, verse 22, here's what he says. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant of the law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. So the ark, it is there, the Lord says, that I will meet with you. And so the ark becomes this association with God's presence and a significant marker to the Israelites that he is gonna go before them and lead them to the sanctuary, to this holy dwelling. So then you get to Joshua, right? And Joshua now is gonna be the one that leads God's people into the promised land. And it comes to that moment where they now have to cross not the Red Sea, but the Jordan. And they start working their way through the camp and they say, you know what's gonna lead us to cross the Jordan? It's the ark. It's the Lord. And they instruct that the people that are carrying the ark are supposed to walk up to the Jordan and set foot in it and then watch what happens. And this is how Joshua explains all of this to the people. It's starting in Joshua 3, verse 9. Joshua said to the Israelites, <clears throat> come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. 
see the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. How do you know you're going to be victorious in battle? The ark is going to go before you. And the ark became a fixture in their lives, right? It it, it followed them and led them through so many of these different victories. And so then you kind of fast forward, right? So now a kingdom is starting to be established. You get to 1 Samuel and the ark and the presence of the Lord is so important. And at this point in time, there is no king. They're still kind of being guided by prophets like Eli and Samuel's about to emerge. And there's this battle in 1 Samuel, the first few chapters of 1 Samuel, where uh, now the Israelites are in battle against the, the Philistines. And they start to lose this battle. And so what do they do? They say, go to Shiloh, bring up the ark. And when the ark arrives in the camp, you know what it says in the scriptures? That a, that a loud roar erupted from the camp of the Israelites, that it shook the ground. That's how they felt about the ark. Now, what's interesting about this part in their story is that they still actually lose the battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines capture the ark, and they take it from them. And so there's this this exchange that takes place right in the aftermath of this defeat where a messenger runs to Eli, the prophet Eli, who's very old in age. And the messenger has his clothes torn, his dust on his head, all signs of lament and anguish. And he comes and he breaks the news first and foremost to Eli, your sons have died. But it tells us that a lot of Eli's main concerns were for the ark. And so the messenger says, and the ark of the Lord has been captured. And Eli falls back and breaks his neck and dies. And so then the daughter-in-law of Eli hears the death of her husband, hears the death of Eli, and hears that the ark has been captured. And she begins to give birth to a child, and she begins to lose her life through childbirth. And before she dies, she names her son Ichabod and says, for the glory of the Lord has left Israel, for the ark has been captured. Like that's the level of desperation that they felt when the ark was lost. And so the ark goes with the Philistines, and yet while it's in their possession, you know what happens? Like they start getting all sorts of illness, disease, tumors break out throughout the camp, and so they pass it on. And it goes from like different people to different people, and everywhere that it lands, that same thing starts to happen. And it gets to the point where everyone's like, we don't want this anymore. Get it back to Israel. So it ultimately makes its way back to Israel, settles in a town for about 20 years. Fast forward a little bit further. And now David's on the throne. He's establishing his kingdom. He's starting to have victory uh, victory on all sides of him. And he ends up uh, winning and conquering Jerusalem. And it tells us in 2 Samuel, I think chapter 5, that he's going to refer to Jerusalem as the city of David. And now that he has this peace on all sides, you know what he says? We need to bring the ark to the city of David. And they start to bring the ark to Jerusalem, which we all know, ultimately Solomon will build this temple and the ark will ultimately rest in the Holy of Holies in this temple. This is the dwelling place of God. And so many people believe, that's all context for y'all, that Psalm 24 is capturing this moment where they bring the ark into Jerusalem. 2 Samuel chapter 6, starting in verse 12, describes it this way. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David. And the city of David was rejoicing. And when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. 
while he and all Israel were burning, bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. Right, so the ark, the presence of God is being brought into Jerusalem and it is a joyful declaration because this is the Lord. The king of glory is returning to Israel, the Lord strong in battle. And that's what Psalm 24 is trying to capture. And so what does that mean for you and me? Right, part of it is to recognize just the weight of the story and the joy that filled the people of Israel to know that the king of glory was coming to dwell with them, that they could meet with him, that the ark and his victory in battle was really to solidify and give assurance of his presence in their life, that he would be with them. And so it was worth this sort of joyful celebration. So what does that mean for you and me? How does that reality, this part of Psalm 24, speak to us and our expectations of God and, and our understanding of who he is? Well, there's, there's a certain benefit that you and I have that allows us to read Psalm 24 slightly differently. Because when you look at Israel's history and you see the emphasis on the ark, you see the emphasis on Mount Sinai and Jerusalem and the temple, that this was the place that you communed with God, that you met with God. Something remarkable happens about a thousand years later. About a thousand years later, there's a man from Nazareth who sits down with a woman at a well. And he begins to talk to her about what it looks like to worship. He says to her, there's a time coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. A time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The time is coming when all this will change. And that same man from Nazareth would ultimately be hanging on the cross. And when he breathed his last and he shed his blood on that cross, that temple, the Holy of Holies, where that ark and the presence of God was believed to be, that curtain that separated man from the presence of the Lord was torn in two. And everything changed to the point that the early church, people like the Apostle Paul, would begin to reorient our whole understanding of what it means to worship the Lord in spirit and truth. He would write to the church at Corinth and say, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. And he would write to another church explaining this mystery, saying that this mystery is that the dwelling place of God is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so you and I now read Psalm 24, recognizing that the earth is the Lord and everything in it, including us, right? That we can come before him with this posture of confession and repentance, weeding out the idols in our life, seeking him in sincerity, orienting our entire life around him. And we come before him saying, let the king of glory come into my heart, my soul, my life. And we can have this opportunity to say, well, who is this king of glory? Well, he's the one strong in battle. And the one enemy that this king 
fought for you and for me was far greater and far superior than Pharaoh and his armies, that our Jesus came and defeated sin and death. And the victory now belongs to you and me. And that is not just some metaphorical victory. It is a victory that carries us into eternity. So when we approach the Lord in prayer and worship, know who you're approaching. Understand that everything belongs to him, that he is the one mighty in battle. When we gather together, let us do what we can to ready ourselves to show just how important he is to you and to me and to us. Let us come with clean hands and a pure heart, seeking the God of Jacob, the King of glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you. We thank you for the opportunity to give you such praise. And so I ask God that you would speak to us this morning in such a way that allows our hearts to be ready for all that you are and all that you do for us. God, forgive us of the things that can so easily distract, that can so easily lead us astray and let us come before you in sincerity and in truth, seeking your face above all else. Help us to see that everything is yours. God, if there's anything that we have today that we need to confess before you, let us do so in in truth. God, if there's anything that we have put as an idol in front of you, let us acknowledge it now before you and surrender it to you that we could truly be able to put you appropriately on your throne. Let us see you as the king of glory and invite you into our heart and into our lives that you might reign supreme. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen.